Coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. Well, when he stood up and said at least the next three months, and I know I can tell you that he paid everybody for the next two years. And he could have kept the $300 million insurance money and just walked away. That was not at all his thinking, as I've heard him say, what am I going to do, eat more or buy a new suit? It's nice to sit down and have a nice glass of wine and just among friends with intellectual, intelligent conversations. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black the, people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, not Bill? Not one. Come not on, Bill, one. you got to have one, a nope. token black person, a token And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just want to say thank you for all those who do for the least of these and those who do for others with no expectation in return. We thank you and we praise you. Amen. 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 Dear Heavenly Father, we're going to be talking about a man by the name of Aaron, and it's not the biblical one. And just thank you for Aaron and the things he did in his life as we share with our guest the amazing things this man did with his wealth and his knowledge and his heritage. Amen. 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 So this is about a heroic Jewish man who's passed away, uh, but he had a... Uh, very large textile mill and uh it burnt down and uh so i'm going to read uh there's a couple youtube videos on him aaron furestein that's f-e-u-e-r-s-t-e-i-n was was one of the most incredible incredible people uh he was a jewish man who understood what it meant to be part of the jewish nation he sanctified god's name in a way that literally changed the world when a person dedicates himself to living a life following God's Torah, the world becomes a better place. Furistein chose to follow God. He chose to bring God into his world through his remarkable act of kindness and way of life. We may not all have the financial means to change people's lives in such a way that he did, but God has given every person his own talents and skills. God has given every person his own unique abilities to make the world a better place. The question is, what do we do with these gifts that God gave us? How are we going to change the world? Every deed we do for God, every commandment we keep, every prayer we recite has an impact. We may not always see the results of our efforts, but if we are following God always, 
and doing our best to sanctify his name, there is no doubt that the world will be a better place. What each and every person says and does matter. Aaron Fernstein left the world a better place because of his actions. He was a true righteous man. If we carry on with the lessons he taught us and the lives of those around us, will be changed forever and for the betterment. Amen. So the first thing I'd like to say is that Aaron Feuerstein was the owner and of Malden Mills, and he was my boss, had lots of executives in between myself and him. Uh, since I was initially a sales rep in the Southeast and then um, became the regional manager uh, at one point uh, for the Southeast. Uh, but Aaron Feuerstein was not only uh, our boss, and I could say this for a lot of people, he was also our friend because that's the kind of person he was. Um, and um, <clears throat> I didn't actually, when I started in that career, I was actually working for some other people who sold their company to him. Um, and that was a good thing that happened. Um, one of the biggest things that I know about Aaron Feuerstein, and there's lots and lots that I can talk about, but he would, he, for many years, he was a runner every morning. Uh, he would go out and run in the morning, not every morning. And sometimes it was very cold. He was used to the uh, Boston weather, so it didn't bother him to when he was in North Carolina in High Point for the High Point Furniture Markets. Uh, it didn't bother him to be out in the cold. Uh, but he also, uh, on alternate mornings, one morning he would study Torah, the five books of Moses, the laws of Judaism. And on alternate mornings, he would study Shakespeare. Wow. He would memorize Shakespeare. Uh, and that was those were his two greatest loves as far other than his business. And uh, I heard, and I didn't realize until the last, uh, until after he passed away, when I heard his granddaughter speaking that he loved his business. And he knew that the people, and I heard him say this, the people, were his greatest asset in his business. Mm. Uh, and I think he learned a lot of that from Torah. Mm. He was, he followed in his father's and grandfather's uh, footsteps. Uh, the mill was actually bought by his grandfather. Um, it was a textile mill, correct? Originally, it was a sweater mill, a knitting mill that knitted sweaters in Malden, Massachusetts. Okay. Um, and he, uh, his grandfather was living in New York and he wasn't happy with, he was dealing in some real estate and he wasn't happy in that business. And he heard about this, uh, sweater knitting mill in Malden, Massachusetts. And the story I have is that he went and bought it with no knowledge and knowing anything about how to do, run a knitting mill or sweaters but he knew he could sell things he'd already proved that he knew how to sell mm -hmm. and uh the word i have that i've heard from other members of his family is that he hired the best people to help him learn the sweater business 
So that's that's a key key point that yes. that the family followed. Absolutely. And then eventually they um the sweater business changed and he they bought the mill and started into uh more of textiles. Um uh they had weaving uh uh for upholstery, they had knitting, they had fake furs, they uh we even in the upholstery division which i was in uh home furnishing upholstery uh we explored every bit of the other types of products that the mill made uh and used them wherever we could come up with and and their people the people that he had there were very creative in the ability to uh use something like uh for example one time when polar tech was so uh popular for clothing we tried it on home furnishing on sofas and chairs and it sold some, but it wasn't as successful as uh, other things. Uh, but there were areas that did become successful um, by just trying it, figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to Aaron, which is really uh, a topic that I, I think what we want to talk about Um I would like to say that when he would come to the high point furniture market, so after a very short period of time of him coming and me being there, uh, I became the one that he wanted to ride in my car. He wanted me to take him around to the different furniture companies. And even when we were visiting factories from other uh, other territories, other salespeople, they would be there, but he wanted me there, wow. uh, which I, Very you cool. know, I, I was, I was honored to do that. I, I was always happy to pick him up in the morning. We'd have breakfast and the lunch and, and I would drive him wherever it was. And back in those days, there was a Hickory furniture market and we'd drive out to Hickory and back to high point area. Um, and so, um, uh, but it was, it was me that Took as a rule, Took as a rule. And I would always make sure because as we've talked about, he was a very religious man. He followed, um, the, uh, uh rules of kashrut as much as, uh, following the, the rules of kosher food, uh, as much as he could when he traveled on business, it was, not something that was particularly easy to do. Particularly it, in barbecue country, North Carolina <laughs> barbecue country. It's tough to find kosher barbecue. I, I don't think he ever found kosher barbecue. <laughs> hey, no. before you get any further, let's explain to our audience what a furniture market is. Oh, okay. Yeah, because some of some of the people in, in the 40 countries may never even know what we're talking about. Okay, so in High Point, North Carolina, the uh, International Home Furnishings Market is held uh, twice a year. Uh, traditionally, uh, April and October, there's been some adjustment in that. But there is, um, I think, about 3 million square feet of showroom space in downtown High Point. And this is a town of less of like 80,000 people. But in downtown High Point, there is there are all these furniture showrooms that are used ba- primarily twice a year for one week. Mm-hmm. And people from all over the world come to buy furniture there, primarily the people from the United States, decorators, designers, 
big mass merchants uh, of all type. They will come and they will shop the market looking at this, at the furniture that uh, has been made. And these are, these are floor samples. These are uh, either new introductions or adjustments, uh, frames and designs that might have a new fabric on them. Uh, and this is shown in downtown High Point. Uh, every furniture buyer Every buyer doesn't go to every single showroom. It's virtually impossible. There's so many there. But uh, if you're a mass merchant, you have your large furniture manufacturers that you go to. And if you're a designer, decorator, and you buy one or two at a time, you have certain showrooms and, and suppliers that you go to. Um there's not just, it's not just upholstery furniture. It's also some bedding and pillows and uh, anything to do with the home furnishing industry. I kind of, uh, I was trying to explain to somebody uh, one time, you know, they, at the height, they were getting 60,000 people for each market. So all the hotels were full here. People were renting out their houses. And But I, 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 I describe it as if you take a house and turn it upside down and shake it, everything that comes out is sold at High Point Market. You can buy anything you want. Um, the the drapery rods, yep. um, the trim that might go on uh, on a pillow or candles, uh, candles, uh, any type of accessories that sit around and um, sit around on your counters or shelves, uh, lamps, tremendous amount of lamps of all different types, floor lamps, um, lighting fixtures uh, that mount in the ceiling. Uh, the so I was in one showroom and there was a light fixture that was a quarter of a million dollars. And you could probably buy a light fixture for $2. Yes. So, so yeah, it was right. that type of range. It's, it's, and that, that fixture that you saw for a quarter of a million dollars, chances are, when it gets to a house, it might be a half a million. It was going to an NBA <laughs> basketball player. So he tells you how much they had. And also let's talk about Aaron a little bit more, but let's give the backstory on why we, we have so much respect for him. His, uh, his factory burnt down. Okay. Um, so, you know, you just said why we have so much respect for him. And yes, the, in, um, December 11th, 1995. Um, and I happened Oops. to be, I happened to be in Puerto Rico with our representative there. As I said, I was the regional uh, manager and, and that was part of the territory. And I was there and got into the office and they said, Lenny, sit down. You got to call your office manager and got her on the phone. And she said, the mill burned last night. Wow. Well, the next thing we did was turned on the TV and that's when we saw the, the flames. It was unbelievable. It was the largest uh, mill fire in the Massachusetts area in decades. Um, and then Aaron Feuerstein, which I find out that he started thinking when he was brought to the to see the fire. Uh, that he started thinking, how will I fix this? How can I make this good? How can I bring good out of this bad thing that's happening? And he stood up the next morning and he said to 
and I'll never forget and quote exactly the words, all, and he said, hourly employees, no, all employees will be paid for the next 30 days, including all medical insurance. And that included me. Um, and these were, you know, I was, okay, I was a salesman, I was a manager, but uh, the people in the room with him were, were the employees of the mill. And these were people that didn't know what was coming next. And as I said, this was December 11th, and I being Jewish is one thing, but most of the people in that room were not, and they were thinking about their Christmas. And they're thinking, my job, my place of work is gone, uh, and what am I going to do? Well, when he stood up and said, at least the next three months, and I know I can tell you that he paid everybody for the next two years. Wow. And he could have kept the $300 million insurance money and just walked away. He could have walked away. No, <laughs> that was not his choice. Um, his choice was to uh, rebuild and not to take the rebuild at someplace else, but to rebuild there. He was the largest employer in Lawrence, Massachusetts, in the area, but especially Lawrence. I remember at one time, the mayor actually worked in the mill. Wow. Um, so if you figure it that way, Aaron Furstein was more important to the uh, city than the mayor. Than the mayor. Wow. But I want to tell you something else about, you know, it was the mensch of Malden Mills that morning, and everybody talks about that. But this is something that I know. Explain what a mensch is. A mensch is a very good person that does the right thing all the time. Uh, you do, if there's a problem, they try to help and fix it. So when I say that he was a mensch, charity was something that they had always given. They, the family. Um, and I know that that particular in 1995 in December, uh, prior to Christmas, he went around with lots of cash and lots of turkeys and donated it to churches and to people he to give out uh, give out the turkeys. Well, he did this because he's been doing it for years and years and years. This was not done just because of the fire. This was something that he always did. Hmm. Every Christmas season, he would go out and make donations to churches and turkeys uh, to take care of other people. Wow. I want to tell you something else about, to describe what a mensch is. So I remember one time there was a like a little flash fire. It wasn't a big, nothing, just flash and... This one man on a tow motor was burned. Just one particular guy, and the flash fire went away. Uh, but he couldn't work. So uh, Aaron sent his daughter uh, at the time to uh, go and check on the family and see how he was doing and see what was going on. And she came back and told him that he was the exclusive breadwinner for the family 
and there was a house full of other people that uh, were unemployed. Well, the next day, every other person in that house was working at Malden Mills. Holy cow. Uh, so this family, they suffered because the breadwinner was burned. He recovered. He was he was able to recover. But the rest of the family got jobs wow. and needed them. Wow. Who needed them. That's a very cool story. That's very cool. That's story. a mensch. And, yeah. and that was never brought up in relation to the mall, the fire of 95. No, there were so many things prior that he'd been doing. Hey, let's bring Odell in this because I don't want him to fall asleep. Nah, just to, so I guess, no, we are honored that our special, so our audience would know that we are honored that our special guest is Lenny Samet. He is a mitch in our community for sure. And it's interesting when we recap uh, what Aaron did, here it is a man who I think he was third generation. His grandfather started the mill, then his father, then it was him. And you're looking at 3,000 individuals that were involved here and they lost their jobs right before Christmas. Now, the interesting thing that Lenny stated was that, uh, you know, Aaron was Jewish, but he understood the fact that other people celebrated Christmas. Now, when the mill burned down, it was what, close to 300000 to a half a million dollars of life, in, I mean, insurance for it. And he had an option, as was stated earlier. He could have taken the money, closed the plant, pocketed the money, go about his business, or rebuild the plant down south where the labor was cheaper and he could pocket more money. But he chose to do the right thing. He chose to rebuild right there, bigger and better than ever, and pay everybody the whole time. And I love those quotes, uh, Lenny, what you said. He said, what am I going to do with the money? Eat more, buy a new suit. And he did the right thing. And then Lenny, later on, he went on to say that the company got in trouble eventually and filed bankrupt. And someone asked him the question, do you regret paying the people the money at the time that might have been a savior financially for your company? And he said no. But Lenny, can you pick up right there and explain why did he say no and why was that so special in his answer to why, even in his bankruptcy, he never blamed the fact of doing good was the reason for his misfortune? Well, what I would say is that at the time of the fire, the right thing to do was to pay the employees who uh, depended on him to pay their weekly income. He knew that these were not people that had assets and income or other income or uh, funds to fall back on. Um, And that was the right thing to do then. He wasn't going to go around and pick out certain people that might need it more than others, but he just said, this is the right thing to do. And that's uh, that was his teachings from the Torah. Uh, from the five books of Moses. Uh, and when you do something that's right, and then, as you said, we went into bankruptcy, the bankruptcy wasn't necessarily because he spent all that money. Um, there were just factors that caused the bankruptcy. Things change, you know, when you when you're building, when you're trying to do the the things he tried to do as quickly as possible. Things didn't always work out when you're trying to uh, rebuild 
a $300 million business in a matter of as quickly as possible, things didn't always work out the way they were planned. And he had some problems, uh, but he's not blaming it on the employees. It was just business. I, I agree with you. And one of the things that he talked about, Lenny, he said that not to the Torah, not to oppress the workers, don't see them as just extra hands, but see them as human beings. And I thought that was so powerful. And he said his father taught him that and his grandfather taught his father that. And that was just so important because in a lot of cases, we don't always see the importance of those who are doing the work. And he did. So my hat off to him for that. Hey, I mean, this is one of the things that, that the Torah teaches, as you said, and that his father and his grandfather taught him in, in his studying of the Torah, is that a human being is a human being, uh, whether they're working for you in the in the factory or yourself. Um, people, you're all God's children. Well, well, Lenny, help us with this. What some of our listener audience won't know is that Greensboro, North Carolina, in the triad, had this great family by the name of the Cones. Not perfect, but great. And they came and just uh, built giant mills here, knitting mills, gave people all kind of opportunities. Now, you're a little older than I am. How was it when the booming days of the mills here and Explain that because job economics, people came from off the farms in the industries and changed their lives and the lives of their families in that time. And you were right in the middle of that. Actually, I was more, I grew up in High Point um, and I, I moved to Greensboro later on um, after I was married and had three children. So I, to answer your question, I think what I would like to say is that uh, I saw, and when I was growing up in High Point, there were the people who owned the factories and the management. And then there were the people who made the furniture in High Point. And High Point was a major manufacturing uh, center of furniture back then. Uh, there is still some manufacturing, but not as significant as it was then. And I know the the people who worked in those factories uh, the the managers the the owners that i knew knew how that they couldn't do it without those people they just could not they had to have those people and uh, my father actually was in construction and he knew that if his uh people who worked on the construction jobs uh weren't around he couldn't do it all himself uh, he could not accomplish the goals that he did by himself. So uh, the people that worked for him were, uh, they were very important. They, and some of them were like family. Um, and they looked to us as family and we looked to them as family. Um, so that's kind of an approach yeah. that you have to look at when you have people that, I mean, somebody has to be the, somebody has to create the jobs and somebody has to do the jobs. Yep. You know, it Amen. said, it said that um, after the factory got up and going, the uh, people were like 20 or 40% more productive than they were before. And it, it, and it, 
it's not just that he put new equipment in. It was because the people had an attitude. We need to pay him back for what he did for us the last two years. Most of the people, uh, and I saw uh, videos or newsreels where people were crying when he said he'd pay them. And, wow. and, um, and even uh, as years later, uh, I know that there were um, uh, the, the group, a group of uh, alumni from the, from Malden Mills would get together um, sometime in November, December to have lunch. And they were inviting him always to um, uh, just to see him. And, and uh, it was a, a lunch that they could get together, but to be with him. Yeah. And oh this happened, this happened until, um, uh, well, he passed away this, this past um, year, but uh, prior to the prior years, um, um, I would have liked to have gone to one, but I never made it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I have, friends that I still stay in touch with from Malden that were there. Very um, cool. Very cool. It is. Yeah. What else you got on your list there, buddy? Um, so I talked about his daughter, what she did for the families. That was one of the uh, topics that I wanted to, um, Oh, <laughs> this was, uh, somebody asked him on one of the, uh, interviews that did him, which I found interesting. What do you want on your tombstone? Oh my goodness. <laughs> and he said he wants, he did his damnedest. Wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Um, so, uh, and, and, one of the things that I, I guess that I've got here is that he learned from his father and grand or father and grandfather, uh, the two generous be generations before was always to, um, uh, help the poor. Yeah. I mean, this was not something, uh, talked about what he did at Christmas, but, uh, this was something they did all along. Yeah. Um, his, his father, I believe it was his father. I don't think it was, I don't think it was his grandfather. I'm not sure. But they established a synagogue in um, in the Boston um, uh, Brookline, um, and this only happened a year before the the mill fire. Uh, a year or so that the the synagogue for some reason burned wow. that they had established. I I think Aaron was the most significant contributor to make sure that new Israel synagogue in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a part of Boston, uh, was completely rebuilt. Wow. Um, it's still there. Yes. Wow. Uh, Very neat. that was one of the stories. I, you know, some of the things that I know came from his family yeah. and, uh, well, Brookline is a traditional Catholic Irish and that's where the Kennedys came from originally. So it's interesting. Another thing that I I, I learned about uh, the family is that the, um, you know, on the Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath is sundown on Friday to uh, sundown on Saturday. And uh, for a uh, very religious Jew or Jews should not work on the Sabbath. And, um, this was one of the reasons I, I mentioned much earlier that, um, his grandfather bought this knitting mill 
was because in New, where he had lived pr- first in New York, uh, they had signs up if you work here five uh, Monday through Friday and you don't show up on Saturday, you're fired. Don't come back on Monday. Wow. So in New York, that was the standard. Uh, and when his grandfather established uh, Malden Knitting Mills or bought it, um, he immediately put the word out that any Jew that wants to work there, they don't have to work on Saturday because he's not working on Saturday. <laughs> um, so um, that was he was wow. That's very had plenty cool story. of plenty of good people to work yeah. that didn't were good observant Jews. Yeah, you know, um, I, I first time I heard, heard the word Minch was from you, uh, and it related to my daughter and my wife. They are Minches, and I compliment them. Uh, I, I guess I don't know if you've talked about this, but yes, when no, when we haven't. I, we have not. So when I learned when I learned that uh, your daughter Ek and Lisa K was going to donate a kidney to someone she didn't know, and just because it was the right thing to do, uh, I called her a mensch, and then. Because that's a minch, because she's giving up something of herself that, that nobody else could do. And um, then I found out that she was following in her mother's footsteps. So it's two generations of menches that are just. Yeah, makes me tear up. Um, Very it, proud absolutely, of them. Absolutely. I'm just in, in amazed and. Yeah, can't say we're going to have them on the show. Um, I think uh, donor month is either April or May, Odell. So we're going to get them and their donors up and uh, we'll have a little round robin here. So, you know, you you also know Dory's donor. Yes. Yes. Uh, You know, we'll let them tell their story, but it's it's a it's an incredible story how they did it. And then even it it was impactful. And when we went on our trip to Israel. There was a story uh, about, uh, well, I guess I can share this story. Um, when we were in Israel on the community uh, culture tour, uh, interfaith tour, that's what it's called, and Odell invited us, and we were in Magdala, which is still uh, is it an old, uh, ancient Roman town, and uh, it's where Mary Magdalene was from. <clears throat> and uh, it was right on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a big fishing village. So we went there. It was an interesting dig because it was still being done. Most of the places are already have churches on them. <laughs> this was this was the real deal. But they had fish fish holding areas that still held held water the way they'd catch the fish and put them in. You can come and get pick up your live fish. fish. And they had uh, the uh, Jewish uh, baptism where you go and cleanse yourself. The seven steps. Uh, mikvah. Mikvah. They had the it's, mikvah. It's not a baptism. It is. A, it is a ritual bath. Sorry about that. That's that's yeah. fine. I yeah. mean, you know, I understand. Uh, it, it is referred to as a ritual bath, uh, a cleansing. Um, either uh, it's traditionally done maybe before the Sabbath. Uh, it is always done um, before a marriage, uh, before marriage, and. Um, there's some other times. How about, when, how about we, before you go into the temple and if the someone was going to be a rabbi and read, do they do it? Then? I haven't heard that okay. necessarily, but um, there are 
uh, very uh, Orthodox Jews that that go to the ritual bath or the mikvah mm-hmm. um, on before the Sabbath uh, every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I know, uh, and also um, if someone is going through a conversion uh, to Judaism, if they have studied and learned Judaism and the rabbis have accepted uh, their conversion, uh, they are um, required to uh, do the ritual bath. It's it's not, I mean, I guess it is a similar to a baptism in the sense that you're not really getting in there and scrubbing with a scrub brush <laughs> and, and uh, soap. Uh, you just go into the water and it must be pure water. It must be, um, and I don't know if this is true with baptism, but it's supposed to be natural water, mm-hmm. uh, rainwater or naturally flowing water. Wow. I didn't know that. It's, and I, I asked that question, is a baptism done? I don't know, Odell. Do you guys get Well, the, the resident Black Baptist <laughs> in this conversation, <laughs> Lenny, I love the way you said, no, it's not a baptism. And it's interesting <laughs> To that is that when we don't fully understand, and this is what I love about this show, that we ask questions, not like people on the witness stand, but for better understanding, when we don't really understand, we try to pair it with something that we do understand. So to Bill's point is, okay, well, it's like a baptism. I understand baptism. No, it's not a baptism. And the fact that with baptism, we use the faucet. So we use, we turn on the faucet. So it's not rain water, it's not pure water. It's, it's water, water. But the good thing about it is, it's so, such a blessing, gentlemen, when we can sit and talk about these delicate situations because you don't know. And when you don't know, it's better to ask questions. And also we have a big reverse gear that if we ask the wrong questions the wrong way, we can back out of it and get the right answer because nothing's worse than someone using our own bias, prejudice, and stereotypes to try to define what means so much to someone else. So I love this show, Lenny. I love you, what you're doing. And, you know, this whole this whole thing, man, it's just a blessing to understand just to get an understanding. And I think when we really kind of get close and understand, one of our favorite sayings on the show is it's hard to hate up close. And what Aaron did is like, listen, I understand that people have jobs and people have responsibilities and people have bills. So I'm going to bless them. And and that's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. It is. I want to say one more thing about him that is a beautiful memory that I have and my my three daughters have is that on the during furniture markets when it was driving him around because of the ability to find kosher food and he would he would eat certain foods in a restaurant like fish or something or cheese and simple things that that he could uh, manage uh, but I would always have him at my house for dinner and my wife would prepare because we keep a kosher home and after dinner, he always loved to take my three girls and we would sit in the living room and he would want to know what they were studying in Hebrew school in, in, in their Jewish studies. Mm-hmm. And when they were preparing for their bat mitzvah, he would want to hear their what they were going to read from the Torah. And he would want to hear uh, their um, Torah, which is part of what the girls do. Uh, or any boy or girl does at their 13th age. And 
if they made a mistake, he would not have to have a book in front of him. He knew every single one of those readings of the Torah and the uh, Haftorahs. He knew them by heart. And he could, without a bit of hesitation, translate them just as easily. Wow. If you gave him any verse, a chapter and verse in the Torah and said that number to him, he could immediately start reciting it with no book in front of him and translate it without any problem. Wow. 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 You know, Lenny, uh, I've been over to your home and I appreciate the plants that you gave me and we enjoyed. But one thing, um, back to common ground. You know, Lenny, Jesus turned water into wine. And when I was over at your house, you gave me a splendid glass of wine. So I just want to say thank you for that and the plant. So I enjoyed the wine and I enjoyed the plant. Fair enough? Very fair. You are more than welcome. And I can look forward to having you back for more wine and new plants. So, Bill, is wine kosher? Wine's not kosher, right? Yeah, there is kosher wine, isn't it, there? The wine, as there is uh, wine that is kosher, uh, as most foods that uh, are manufactured, just like wine, there is the uh, little, uh, we call it a hexure. Uh, it can be a U with a circle around it. It could be a certain, uh, there's different types of uh, indication on the label. Uh, but for example, um, I know Rabbi Plotkin here in town, uh, does go to certain factories and he certifies that, uh, the, the, what is being manufactured could be used, uh, and that, um, kosher symbol uh, is on there. Um, uh, probably the easiest places, I don't know if this is okay, but, uh, Trader Joe's is the one that usually. The, <laughs> oh uh, wow! I didn't know that. They, if you have to look, not all of their wine is kosher, but they, if we are really looking for it, that's where we get it. But or we have to, or you can order it. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, Bill and Lenny, I didn't know I was drinking kosher wine. You know, I, I didn't. I had no idea. Did it? Did it taste better? Listen, wine <laughs> is wine to me. In a way, it's it's interesting that. Um, when I drink wine, I really don't drink it often, but I enjoy it when I drink it. I'm not one of these Baptists who uh, hide the fact that they drink wine or anything like that. But it wasn't really the wine per se, Lenny. It was the hospitality in the way you and your wife treated me and welcomed, welcomed me there and the conversation. It's always people, guys, in spite of everything, whether it's Bill enjoying a nice cigar or adult beverage, whatever. It's just always the conversation and the respect and the hospitality. And I think that's where we find the common cause, the common good. And we can agree to disagree, but we don't have to always be disagreeable. And in a world like we have today, with we are, in so many cases, we're confronting each other as political enemies instead of com political competitors. It's nice to sit down and have a nice glass of wine and just among friends with intellectual, intelligent conversations. Bill, again, it's hard to hate up close, my friend. It is. It it's is. hard to hate up close. I use that quote all the time. I learned a long time ago that if there's a problem, 
sit down and talk about it. Amen. And, you know, if it takes a cigar or a wine or a beverage, but it doesn't always take that. It just takes two people to discuss and open up and be reasonable about what the other person is feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, we we always ask our, our guests about how you find common ground. You just did it. You just did it. Hey, Odell. Guess yes, what, sir. Guess what's kosher? What's that? Bourbon. <laughs> I've been well, kosher, I've been kosher for a long time. <laughs> okay, I'm not a bourbon drinker. I'll stick with my wine. And I just tell you what, Lenny, just thank you for always treating me with respect and hospitality because it means a lot. And again, you're that guy. You're that guy. And I just want to say thank you for being that way. But one last question I want to ask you before you leave. Who taught you to treat everyone the way you do? You know, it's just my family, my mother, my father. Uh, We always had an open house. Um, that's the house I grew up in. It was, uh, anybody was welcome. And I always relished just like, I love to have people to come over the way you did and, and the way Bill and, you know, other friends come and sit and, uh, my patio, my home, it's, it's, I, I relish that thought. And I'll think back from what the question you're asking my mother loved to have people for dinner for any meal if they came in the house you want something to eat piece of cake whatever whoever it was they were welcome in our house and and i always loved that and i continue that tradition and i know now that my three daughters and their families have conveyed that has been conveyed that everybody is you know, you bring them into your home and treat them like royalty. Yeah. Amen. Wow. Amen. Well, you and sure that- treated me that way. Lenny, what do you want on your tombstone, my friend? I'm a very social person. There you go. I love to interact with other people. I love to have conversations. And you can say I was a social person. There we go. <laughs> there we go. You're a good man, my friend. You are a good man. That's a good I note. I guess, Bill. Out. Thank you. Thank you. Good note to close. Yes. In. Thank you, Lenny, for being a guest and sharing Aaron's life and the things he did and his experiences with you. It uh, made a difference in your life, obviously, and many other people. Lenny, thank you for a couple things. One, being my friend. Uh, and uh, I thought I was your friend, Bill. I thought I was your friend. You can have more than one, can't you? <laughs> I got to check with Odell. <laughs> The, uh, I, I look at the two of you as friends. I have thoroughly enjoyed this, and I thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. It's been good. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Doug Harding, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. Producers Jason Gentarola and Matt Golden. And Jin Ray Zhang, video producer. All rights reserved. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly. 
the Triad's largest circulated and best-read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 Chief Financial Officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events, Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com.